Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Jean-Marc de Valle, professor in applied linguistics and multilingualism at Burbeck University of London. Dr. de Valle, how the f are you? <laughs> nice to talk to you, Jonathan. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll, I'll bleep that out. I just watched your swearing video, so it got me excited. <laughs> <laughs> should I should I call you Dr. Devale or can I call you Jean-Marc? Jean-Marc is fine. So that swearing video, that was really cool. And it looks like that's one of your most cited papers on Google Scholar. That's not really going to be the topic of today's conversation. I kind of wanted to su surprise you. That, that might be the only time I start a podcast like that. So I, I was really excited to do that. Do you do you do you sort of get that approach a lot from people who want to interview you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm always very careful because I'm always reminded that these words should never be pronounced on air. Right. Yes. Because uh, I got interviewed a couple of times uh, by the BBC, and 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 they kept reminding me that I was not allowed to say out loud any of these words that they were interested in. Which is kind of strange because, you know, a public figure has used a specific word in a specific context and then I'm asked to discuss the word without mentioning it. It's a bit like Voldemort in, in, in the Harry Potter series. But that's interesting because in the interview you talk about if another culture's curse word is used, then it's acceptable do do so, like for me i'm definitely going to bleep out the word i said in the in the in the intro but do i have to bleep out the quebecois curse word you talked about in that video if i say that <laughs> no sure everything depends on who your listeners are and hence um you you know that they will be more sensitive to uh, swear words in their first language uh, and they really don't care whether you use a Quebecois swear words if your listeners aren't Quebecois. I had no idea it referred to furniture. Or yeah. I had no, because I've been to Quebec and I have friends from Quebec and mm -hmm. and I, I've heard that word multiple times. I learned that word. That's one of the first words I, first words I learned because it was so, so cool sounding and they yeah, put yeah, so yeah, much yeah. emotion into it. But I yeah. had no idea that's what it came from. You know, it's one of these paradoxes that they are the words, they are typically one of the first words that you come into contact with um, in a foreign language. And, and yet, in fact, these words are beyond your understanding, beyond your grasp, and are very dangerous for you to use because they can backfire. Well, you broke it down really well because you said languages like Italian, their curse words are more associated with religious symbols. So mm -hmm. that makes sense. And then you said that the Germans are more associated with, with animals. animals. Yeah. The, the Italians also uh, refer to quite a lot. But, ah. um, it, it's, it's interesting that there are these uh, subtle cultural differences to, uh, in, in the choice of swear words. And another thing I was thinking about is in Australia, the word you talked about, which is the most the worst word you can say in English in England is actually quite commonly mm -hmm. used in Australia, mm -hmm. but it's yeah. a, it's a real so, bad word in, in America too. I wouldn't say that. 
So, so that is a danger then if, if you are a user English variety that you assume that the swear words have the same power in the different varieties, a dangerous uh, assumption. Well, anyway, that's a really cool video. And it, it made me think about a lot of different situations that I've been in in my life. For example, in Japan, you meant you mentioned that that sign that you saw, and you think about you think about swearing when you go to different countries and how what what would happen if I said this word because it has less significance to me than it does with the the culture or the mm. country I'm in, right? Mm. That's a very yeah eyes there. And I guess that kind of relates to what we're going to talk about today, which is the global trait emotional intelligence. So the book we're going to focus on today is the book which you edited with Christina Gano and Jim King, and it's the emotional roller coaster of language teaching. In the interview today, we're going to go over briefly the introduction chapter, which you co-wrote with your uh, other editors that I mentioned. We're also going to go over some things in your chapter you wrote, chapter 15, and maybe some some of the concluding concluding thoughts. I was th- I guess to start it off, I kind of wanted to talk about emotions because in my research, a lot of the terminology, the, the, I, I'm studying language learning anxiety, and a lot of the terminology goes back to Liebert and Morris, 1967, when they're talking about the components of language learning anxiety being worry and emotionality. And when I start, first started reading about that, I, I thought it was kind of strange that emotionality corresponds with physiological responses like heart rate. So I guess from your perspective, and you talk about it in the book in, in, on page two, you talk about it a little bit. Why, why are emotions or emotionality uh, associated so much with physiological responses? Why did that come to be in the literature? Uh, I guess it, it's just the result of observation that if you uh, look at some of the terrible news, they will go pale. Mm-hmm. So that's a physiological response. That somebody who gets good news, uh, you know, a promotion, you will see them smile. You might see them, you, you see more coloring in their face. You might observe bodily reactions like waving of arms. So it is pretty obvious that information can have emotional consequences and that these are both cognitive, uh, emotional and behavioral, and obviously some people are better than others at hiding these emotions, especially if they are socially undesirable. Um, if you, I, I guess a typical example would be the ceremonies for the Oscars, mm. where all the nominees know that there is a camera fixed on their face that will record um, their uh, rictus their smile or their disappointment when they hear that they didn't win the prize. So those are obviously emotional, physiological reactions to some new uh, information. So so the two are linked. Emotions and anxiety are, are, are part of the same picture. Oh, I guess that makes sense. I, For some reason, I, I'd always struggled with labeling components as worry and emotionality. But the way you just described makes a lot of sense. In in the paper, you write, 
Emotions and feelings should be seen as two distinct but highly interrelated concepts. Emotions refer to physical manifestations or responses to an event, as opposed to feelings which depict mental associations and reactions to an emotion. Now, the, the great thing about this podcast is I can read something like that, I can think about it, but I, I, I can almost you know, play the student here. Can you explain what you mean by that? Because I, I still have trouble getting my mind around the, the distinction between emotions and feelings and their relationship. I, I would never attempt to explain it because I, I don't think two, uh, even psychologists would probably not agree where the overlap stops because they're obviously linked and overlapping. Um, and I'm not an emotion psychologist, so I, I would not go there uh, to, to avoid uh, embarrassing myself. What do you mean, though, by feelings which depict mental associations and reactions to an emotion? What, what exactly does that mean? You're, you're, you're citing Barrett, so if you don't want to give your explanation. I, I think you, you, you should probably ask that to Christina Gokonu, who uh, inserted that in the text there. Um, I wouldn't really use that distinctions, uh, distinction between feelings and emotion. Uh, my understanding is that, that emotions are probably um, shorter in time, where, where, whereas the feelings can probably linger on for, for longer. Um, and I think one, one of the important things that uh, Barrett uh, includes in her um, definition of emotions is that, in fact, you, you, you probably never experience a pure emotion in the sense that you always have a combination of emotions um, that, that, that can shift quite quickly um, and, and that the emotions are never pure. So you, you are never purely angry. You could be uh, angry and sad or you can be uh, e even um, angry and fearful or not fearful. So you have an infinite number of combinations of emotions, and I guess you have an equally infinite number of, of, of complex feelings. Um, we, so, so, so I would say that our choice of theoretical framework is in opposition to um, Ekman's idea of um, the six basic emotions. Uh, we, we do not agree with, with that um, distinction between only six basic emotions. We think uh, com uh, emotional reality is much more complex and much more messy, uh, and hence it, it's sometimes very hard to disentangle what exactly you experienced or felt even at one moment in time, because it can be a lot of different things that you were thinking of and, and experiencing. So it means that even your increased heart rate, it would be hard to um, attribute it to one specific thing you were feeling, because maybe it was only the combination of the different things that make your heart beat faster. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, in a previous interview, I, I interviewed David Matsumoto on his research in with emotional display rules. And uh -huh. not only can it be difficult for you to self-report your own emotions, but as far as judging the emotional displays of others differs between cultures. And he studied how a Japanese person might look at a, an American's facial expression and they might think that they're actually overdoing the expression and they don't actually feel it. And then the Japanese are kind of mm -hmm. under underdoing their facial expressions. And then that also links to what you're talking about with emotions because 
um, he was talking about in his research how there's this unit, this theory of universal emotions, and he was comparing uh, blind judo athletes at the Olympics, um, mm-hmm. and on the podium, almost similar to your uh, analogy with the uh, Oscars, and he found that the emotion displays were the same. So this this universal yeah. em- emotion theory of the facial expressions and the display rules and it's a fascinating you know idea. Is that why you kind of thought you wanted to to write this book? I guess I wanted to write this book ever since I became a teacher, um, and when I realized that I had trouble reading the facial expressions of my uh, Asian students. Um, I remember wondering why it was so hard for me to have a look at them and and know immediately whether they were happy or not with what I was teaching them. Um, I remember an episode where I had a a Pakistani student and we we had been singing. Uh, I I used to be um, a French teacher at a free university in Brussels. Um, And so I I, I taught French at all levels and this was... um, I would say lower intermediate class, and I was doing a naughty song in French with them. Uh, and everybody was enjoying the class very much, except that one guy, uh, a Pakistani student, and he wasn't smiling, he wasn't laughing. He, he, he was um, very controlled and still. And, and, and in fact, I, I was worried that he might be angry. So I was checking behind me whether the door was ajar and I could escape in case he uh, attacked me. And then uh, it was the end of the class and then uh, everybody got up and and left and and he was still sitting. And then suddenly he got up and raised his hand and came to me. And I was really ready to bolt because I thought, okay, what is coming here? And then suddenly he uh, shook my hand and said, I very much enjoyed your class, sir. And I was so surprised. I said, oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. But, but I was totally surprised because I, I, I had the opposite view uh, watching him uh, and, and, and his behavior being so different from the others. So I realized at that point that people can behave themselves and yet show completely different signs uh, of uh, enjoyment. And, and it was obvious that I had been unable to read his expression. So I guess that that's probably... I would say the start of my interest in emotions in classrooms. Can I ask you a little bit about your your background? Um, I, I am Belgian. Uh, I grew up in Bruges, um, where uh, which is in fact a monolingual Dutch-speaking region of Belgium. Uh, though at home we used French, so I grew up bilingual. Um, but I did all my schooling in Dutch, and I think that growing up bilingual was was the uh, sparked my interest in in bilingualism and, and linguistics. Uh, so I went on to study French at the Flemish uni- Free University of Brussels, um, got my PhD there, um, looked for a job, found a job in London, uh, and then um, I moved. Uh, my wife and I moved to London, and then. Uh, in fact, we, we've been very happy to be in a very multilingual and multicultural uh, environment. Um, I guess I decided to do a PhD because I, I started teaching French, as I uh, explained, and then I realized that I wanted 
more autonomy in my teaching. And mm -hmm. I thought that as a uh, working in, in tertiary um, education, being a university professor, I might be, I might have more academic freedom than uh, being a secondary school teacher. Uh, so that's what drove me to do the PhD. And then once I got to academia, I realized it, it's paradise because you can do research on whatever you like uh, and you can link it to um, past experiences and observations. And with a little luck, the research you do can have some positive implication for the teaching profession or for society at large. So your children, you're, you're raising them bilingual? Um, I have one trilingual daughter. Tri, um, wow. We, I, I used French with her. My wife used Dutch with her. Uh, and she grew up in London, so she had uh, English. Um, she's at home right now. In fact, she's aged 23, uh, finished her studies. Uh, and in fact, I um, talked about her linguistic development in a previous book published with... Um, multilingual matters so called raising multilingual children um, because that in itself is also fascinating why is it that that sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't uh, it's a long-term process and and uh, there is no guarantee of success so um, i guess it's like relationships really i i think i'm going to read that book because i also have a daughter and her story is interesting. You know, I'm American. My daughter's Japanese, but she was born in Australia. Mm -hmm. And I struggled to keep her English ability up. I did take her to America last summer for a month. And it was just mm -hmm. her and I. And she was less dependent on her mother for language. And her, her ability just went through the roof. So my opinion is if I can keep doing that. Um, oh, yes. Just, just taking her and I for a month in America, maybe once a year. I think I can keep her English level up because... I'm sure you, you saw the same thing. If the child can't visualize how it's useful, like they, yeah. they, can't, they can't understand. I mean, your daughter's 23, mine's seven. A seven-year-old can't understand what the world means unless they see it. You can't say, oh, well, English is important because people speak it in all these different countries. But all her, her friends speak Japanese, oh, no, so no. Why, why should she care, right? That, that's a useless argument. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, it's, a good idea to, it's a good idea to take her to the state. I would also do something on a daily basis that I did with my daughter. Um, I read um, fr uh, stories in French to her. We read books in French uh, before uh, bedtime. So she would go to bed. I would read. We would read uh, a chapter of a book, and and we did that until she was a teenager. Um, and and it was our shared joy to be reading a good book. So I would recommend you read. A book that she's really interested in in English, and you do that every day. That's a, a, a good way to, um, I would say, infuse her with new vocabulary and cultural knowledge and, and a good story. I think that's a great idea. It's tough, you know, because it's your it's your daughter. It's not a student, so there's there's yeah. emo there's emotions that tie into it as well when sure. they push back. I don't did you did you have a phase or phases where she pushed back and just didn't want to do it, okay. even that nighttime. Uh, reading session oh yeah we, we we were never dogmatic about it so if she didn't feel like it that's fine but i, I would return the following evening and then <laughs> you know, but once it, it is a ritual um 
that, then it's okay. And if it's something both of you enjoy, um, then again, the, the, that's okay. Um, we, we, we never forced her to use our language, but, but we kept using our language with her and we allowed her to answer in English sometimes if, if it was about something that had happened at school and obviously she didn't want to translate into French or Dutch what the teacher had said, so she could tell the story in English. But the moment that was finished, then we, we kind of expected her to switch back to either Dutch or French. And she was good doing it. So, so had we had the second child, maybe it would have been very different. So there is no single recipe for success. It worked out with her. But, but you know, it, I would say it's because of circumstances and, and they could be very different. It's typically harder to keep up. Uh, minority language at home if, if um, siblings come along because then they typically want to use the majority language within the home oh really wow i never even thought about that yeah wow so someone reading your book who has multiple children would have to view it in a different way um yeah the the, the thing is that there is no recipe for success every child is different uh, every parent is different um and 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 sometimes it's um, <clears throat> I would say a matter of um, uh, unexpected events. Sometimes it's enough that a child hears something negative about a language used at home by a friend or a teacher at school, and that could cause the end of the use of that language. Um, so we we were quite lucky in the sense that French and Dutch are, are rather positively viewed positively in the UK. So she was complimented for knowing French, for example, because French was is typically a language taught uh, at school. But had it be, I don't know, Punjabi or Lingala, mm. it might have been a different reaction and she might have decided to give up on the language. So, so the, there is so many factors at play that you cannot control everything as a parent. You can only do your little best, which is take her to the home country, um, read to the child, um, you know, associate the language with something fun rather than something tedious. Um, yeah. Let's jump into the chapter. So this is chapter 15 in the book, The Emotional Roller Coaster of Language Teaching. And your chapter, What Psychological, Linguistic, and Sociobiographical Variables Power EFL, ESL Teachers' Motivation. This is, this is a really cool concept. You're, you're talking about global trait emotional intelligence or maybe like an emotional IQ, uh, the ability to read the room, kind of as you mentioned before, your your ability to read the room, but also maybe the differences in like your Pakistani student. So you were you had this emotional intelligence where you were sensitive enough to feel this person was feeling something. There was a bit of a disconnect, but you still had the intelligence to 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 see that situation, to be kind of fluid and mobile and these these things that I don't really think about, but I, I guess, you know, not to jump ahead, but in some of the conclusions is that maybe people that lack emotional intelligence or trait emotional intelligence tend to leave the teaching profession or choose a different career path just because it could be so, so difficult. Is that, is this the core of why you wrote this chapter? Is this something that you sort of discovered over time that you have this emotional intelligence and that it, that you need it? Is this uh, another teacher you saw growing up that was really good at sort of reading the room? Yeah, no, I, I, I remember I was um, 
uh, a pretty horrible school kid. Um, uh, I, I remember age 13, um, I was in a school that was used by a teacher training college next door. And so the uh, young teachers in training, they, they, they came to our school to practice. And I remember with my friends that we would test um, each student teacher by trying to make them weep. Um, and I, I would say that we were very cruel. Um, and, and, and I'm ashamed of myself thinking back. Um, so we, we tried to um, punch, we, you know, we verb try to unsettle them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then sometimes we managed to unsettle them and they became very angry and started yelling and then we laughed because that's what that you know it meant that in fact that teacher wasn't good and you won and then, you won uh, the game we, we won the game but then sometimes the, the 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 student teacher did really well and 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 you know had natural authority and and could uh, convince us to do whatever uh, he or she proposed and and there we had huge respect we said okay this is somebody who can lead kids, you know, that, that, that's a good teacher. So, so I guess that's why it, it, it's important to, to have that experience before you graduate. Are you made for a classroom or not? Can you communicate? Do you have sufficient authority? Oh, obviously the moment you start yelling at the kids is the moment where you lost all authority and you can never uh, regain it. So I guess that those who did well were the ones who had more trait emotional intelligence, I would say. And, and unfortunately, if those who didn't do well, I hope they chose a different profession. Otherwise, they would head to uh, burnout at some point um, being teachers. In, in this study, you looked at four main things. You looked at global trait, emotional intelligence, which comprises of well-being, emotionality, self-control, sociability, mm -hmm. um, English proficiency, uh, and you talk about native versus non-native speakers, the length of teaching experience, gender. You also uh, mentioned age as well. Mm -hmm. I guess let's start with the global trait, emotional intelligence, the, the components, well-being, emotionality, self-control, sociability. Uh, it's very interesting reading this chapter because I would say I'm pretty good at reading the room. And mm -hmm. I would say if someone were to break down why I could be good at a party or why I could survive a social situation, it would be these four things. It was a bit uncomfortable reading it because I think mm -hmm. I'm naturally good, not, not to toot my own horn. I think I'm naturally good at these things, especially the mm -hmm. self, the self-control one. I think that gets a lot of people in trouble. Just, yeah. you know, you have a thought in your head, maybe should you say it? Is that the right timing to say it or not? It's really hard to sort of, some people find that uh, troubling. With these four components, well-being, emotionality, self-control, sociability, if you're not, if you don't have natural instincts, is this something that you can improve with time? Is this something you can, you can practice and get better at? This is an interesting question and it's a hard one. Because um, uh, Dino Petrides, who, who is the psychologist who developed this for his PhD and, and, and developed this over the course of his career, of his career um, he is clearly saying that emotional intelligence for him is a trait, mm. a personality trait, meaning that you cannot change a personality trait. 
Um, of course, because if you are more extroverted or more introverted, you cannot change it. Mm-hmm. It obviously doesn't mean that you cannot adapt your behavior somewhat, but you cannot change the trait. So I guess that if you score low on trait emotional intelligence, then, you know, training might help you a little bit um, and your behavior might change maybe, you know, 5%. But I don't think anything could ever change radically. So, so if, if, if you score, uh, and that's a, a delicate point. So I would say that if you score low on trait emotion intelligence, just don't think about becoming a teacher. Um, choose a profession where you, you are not in front of a group of people if you can't read what these people uh, are feeling because you're going to be unhappy and they're going to be unhappy. So, so it's, it's um, a life choice. You, you, you need to choose well. Um, yeah. Well, and you talked about the teachers that scored higher on this survey, for the, the emotional intelligence, they're more likely to be creative and flexible in the classroom. And that makes sense, right? Yeah. You're reading yeah. something's going wrong. You can pivot. And then you Absolutely. have the confidence to pivot where if yeah. you see you're going, if you're tanking and then you don't yeah. read the room and you just continue to, to, to tank, your students at you are both going to be miserable, right? Absolutely. So the, in, in previous research with Petrides and, and his former PhD supervisor, Adrian Furnham, uh, we found that um, uh, multilinguals who score uh, high on trait emotional intelligence also reported lower levels of anxiety in all their languages. And I think it's the same thing that if, if you are, if you have that trait emotional intelligence, then you are not fearful that you might not be able to communicate. You, you, you know that if it won't work with words, you will use your hands or your arms and somehow you will be able to get the meaning across. You're confident that it, it will work. If you lack that ability to feel what the other person is feeling, then you will be anxious because you, you, you don't know whether you will ever get through and whether he or she or them will understand what you are asking them to do. That's really interesting. I'm thinking now I met, I, I used to be um, a musician and I was at the BAMP Center for six months um, in like the early 2000s. And I met musicians from all over the world. And one of them was this guy from Norway and he was a composer. And he, of course, spoke Norwegian and a little bit of Swedish and English and a little bit, but he had this great sense of humor that seemed to translate. Like mm-hmm. he could choose particular words in English. He wasn't totally fluent, but that's mm-hmm. the first person I ever met that seemed to have like a universal sense of humor and that it yeah. wasn't like he was trying to adapt his sense of humor to the language. Like he had mm-hmm. timing, he knew. And he, and I thought if I could just be good enough at a particular language to have that sense of humor, um, mm-hmm. And it maybe was his strong sense of humor or personality that, that guided him to just have confidence to reach a, a lower proficiency at that particular language. Like he wasn't partic- particularly great at Swedish, but I'd see mm-hmm. him talk to a group of Swedish people and they're all laughing. Like he could get, yeah, yeah, he, he yeah. could, he could get people to laugh. Yeah, that's, uh, that's good. Yeah. I'm pretty exceptional. Yeah. I mean, that's why this topic is, is quite interesting because you talked about one of the things you wanted to get uh, some some data on was English proficiency, and that mm-hmm. and that does bring in the whole debate between native and non-native teachers, which is this sort of hot debate, especially in Japan, 
um, you did sort of reference that it's sort of a hotly contested issue. I, I think about it a lot. I wonder if the Japanese, my Japanese students would treat their native Japanese teacher differently than me. I wonder that all the time. Mm. Um, and, and you had some interesting findings in regard to that. But I guess before we get to your, your findings, what, what's your sort of take on how students view a native or non-native teacher? For example, if I were to go to, uh, to Bruges, and teach French and, and then you, or you were the French teacher and let's not think about your, your example where you're trying to make the teacher cry. Like would, if I was equally, if I was had a high proficiency in French, do you think the students in Bruges would respect me or do you think they would prefer to have someone like you who's, who's born in Belgium? Uh, Yeah. The, the, the thing is that I I absolutely hate the distinction between native and non-native. So, so I, you will have noticed in my chapter that I don't use the word non-native speak, uh, teachers. Um, I talk about foreign language, uh, LX, uh, teacher, EFL teachers. So um, be, be, because this distinction between native and non-native is, is uh, very ideological, as you just say, and I think it's also very discriminatory. So I absolutely hate that um, distinction. Um, I also don't think that um, students mind that much uh, in the sense that if the teacher um, seems competent enough, then they don't care really whether that teacher was born with the language or not. Um, Obviously, if the teacher's competence in the language is insufficient, then they might complain. Um, But having teaching a language that is a foreign language to you it, it doesn't mean that you are necessarily um, less proficient or less good in the language. So you, you, you might be influenced by the ideology uh, that you hear at school or in your family if, if they praise native speakers. And um, I know in Japan that um, uh, it, it, it's used for commercial reasons, right, that, that come to our school because we have native <clears throat> speaker teachers uh, I, I think it's 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 wrong um and it's also something i found in other research that the distinction between uh, first and foreign language uh, efl teachers is <clears throat> has very little effect uh, if if the teachers have um i would say an advanced level in the foreign language so so we shouldn't overstate it and uh, and i think we shouldn't um use that distinction to to praise um, language teaching institutions and now I've got the rest of your question well 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 let's well let's talk about that because I didn't mean to offend you and I and I know oh, that no, no. It's, the, it's the, not the only it's reason just an interesting the, topic. the only reason I brought it up is because you did use that language in your paper like you did use non-native speaker or native speaker um, and you use the acronyms. I know some people do not like to even mention those terms, um, but the only like I am sensitive to that issue. Um, but so I, I did notice, like on page two seventy three, you you talked about this debate in Tessel, and you use the acronyms NNEST or NEST, and then before you did use Eng- English LX. So I'm not really familiar with what what is LX? What does that stand for? 
Oh, uh, LX is foreign language, meaning a language you learned after the age of three. Mm -hmm. And uh, I only mentioned um, non-native speaker because, um, uh, I, 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 in fact, I mentioned it as little as possible, as you will have noticed, mm -hmm. uh, because in TESOL, those are terms that are used, like uh, the NNEST or NEST. So, so I had to mention it because I was citing people who used that abbreviation. But I would never use it spontaneously, so I prefer to talk about L1 users and LX users, pointing out that any LX user is by definition also an L1 user, and that an LX user um, is uh, defined by the language they use, but the definition is not one of proficiency. So you could be, uh, you could be in fact an LX user of Japanese with very high proficiency in Japanese. So it absolutely doesn't matter whether you were born with Japanese or not. It, it is irrelevant. It is a language that you use, and therefore you are a legitimate user of that language, just as you are a legitimate user of, of, of English. But again, not because you were born with it, but just because it is one of the languages that you have in your repertoire. Well, yeah, I did want to talk about this because I had a previous conversation with Seiko Harumi, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And in her study, I think she did use these acronyms in her 2011 study in the in the the ELT journal where she mm -hmm. was she was studying students responses of silence to I don't know the terminology I should use now but but she uh anyway in that paper she was she was studying this sort of distinction in silence between teachers that she categorized as native or non-native and mm -hmm. in in your paper, you write that non non native non native speakers are often considered outsiders, while native speakers are insiders with absolute authority and are considered mm -hmm. to be better teachers. Um, mm -hmm. And so, that's interesting to me in Japan because I would say I'm not so sure about that. I, I do agree that some there are these you know for profit English centers that do sort of advertise we have a native speaker. And that's yeah, yeah. one of the big reasons why a lot of native speakers were recruited to Japan with the, you know, exactly. with those programs. But I would say I'm, I'm kind of curious because I feel I am an outsider. So I almost mm -hmm. think that a Japanese teacher, um, I, I wonder if they view me as an outsider and just because I have a high proficiency of English. So it's interesting, this, this debate, when you, when you get into these, like, for example, if you're going to read an article by, by Seiko Harumi where she's mm -hmm. comparing the, these terms, non-native or native, and the idea of silence. When you read that paper, does that make you uncomfortable? Like, do you prefer someone uh, references it in a different way? Because this is something I'm going to have to think about as I write uh, and continue on my research path. Yeah, because I'm, I'm also editor of a, a big journal with Taylor and Francis called the Journal of Multilingual Multicultural Development. So... I ask the authors to avoid using terms like non-native speaker uh, because I think it is a, a toxic term and I think it, it, it's time to ban it. Um, of course, if, if you have done research very recently also on um, uh, students' perceptions of native and non-native, mm -hmm. um, 
I mean, there are certain situations where it's okay to use these terms because you are doing research on them. Uh, but I would say, in general, that it would be um, absolutely better to avoid using um, those terms, uh, especially the term non-native, because it means that you will be, uh, that in fact, you, you, you will never be good enough, it means. Um, and I think that that's really unfair. Uh, and I guess I feel about this because I am a so-called non-native or, or foreign language user of English. I've been using uh, English for 25 years. I will never sound like uh, a British or an American or an Australian uh, person who grew up with English. And I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that. I function perfectly. And I would say um, that I'm probably even dominant in English for academic writing and speaking despite the fact that I have an accent. But that doesn't stop people from understanding me. So it's not a problem. So let's move on and talk about something more interesting, is my uh, attitude. But as far as uh, up-and-coming academics and researchers like myself, if if I wanted to do, like reading your chapter, um, th this chapter has, has brought up some a lot of ideas that I might want to pursue as far as performance mm -hmm. and anxiety and lots of different issues. And one of the things I was mm -hmm. thinking, I was, I was thinking about actually reading this chapter is comparing the performance of students, for example, students in my class, as opposed to students in a Japanese teacher's class. And I think that's a worthwhile uh, study to do or, Absolutely. or the anxiety of the students in my class as it compares to a Japanese teacher or the anxiety of me. Yeah. Like there's so if yeah. I was going to frame these papers, like how should I how should I go about doing it? Because um, I'm aware that this is a hotly contested like that that's a that's a term, but I think some people are go are are not looking at that the term as sort of like um are not meaning to offend anyone, but they're having trouble like I, even me thinking about it now I'm having trouble thinking how I would how I would even frame that um that research to not yeah, offend no. anyone. The, the, the thing is that the distinction between L1 and LX user is an operational, useful distinction. So you could do the research on saying, you know, uh, you are an, an uh, English L1 uh, EFL teacher and, and you compare anxiety levels of students in your class with those who have uh, an English LX uh, EFL teacher. And that's fine. Oh, that's that, it. That, that's it. Yeah. I oh, mean, okay. You, it's just a neutral terms. That's fine. So, so it means that English for you is an L1, and for your colleague, it's an LX. Well, that's fine. Oh, that, that, cool. That's cool. Okay. Neutral. Uh, but, but you don't call your teach, your your colleague a non-native speaker of English, and you a native speaker of English because there you instigate a hierarchy. And hence, you, you kind of put him in a lower position. But the fact is that you, you have a different linguistic history. And it is interesting to see whether you having English as a first language and he having English as a foreign language, whether that might have an effect uh, on, on, on students' reactions. I think that is perfectly legitimate. There is no problem with that. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your candor on that. Um because this is something that I have heard brought up and and that people need to be aware of the implications behind it. Because yeah. I actually 
I actually would like to do research to sort of contest the idea that um, LX are considered outsiders and L1s are considered insiders in Japan. I'm, I actually would like to do research to try to test that theory. Um, so uh, I would say that the insider-outsider thing kind of, I wouldn't say disappear, but, but it, it is less crucial or, or it, it is not inherent in the use of the term. Because mm. if you say non-native, then inherent in the use of the term is that they are outsiders, right? If you use L1 or LX, well, that's a neutral distinction. So, so there is not, it, it does not imply that if you are an LX teacher that you are automatically an outsider. It, it doesn't. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just, it's like culturally, I, I'm an outsider because I'm not Japanese. Yeah, sure. I, I, mean, I, I agree with that. But, but that, it, that could be down to the way you look more than the way you sound. Right. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we can move on. I'm, I'm sorry to stick on that, but that's... Uh, no, it's an interesting topic. It is interesting. Okay. So can you talk about the methodology? Um, this was a survey that you put up and you had 513 respondents, correct? And did you say that's that right. three-fourths of the respondents were LX? Is that um, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's correct. Yeah. It, it, it's data I collected with uh, Sarah Mercer and uh, Christina Gokonu, uh, and, and that we used, uh, we, we had a, a large database that we used for different papers, and this is probably the penultimate production based on that specific database. So it was an international sample of EFL teachers, um, and we had um, a, a large proportion, as you said, were... Uh, had English as an LX, and you mentioned a couple other, a couple other papers that that you wrote using this data set. Yeah, we 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 had um, collected data using different instruments, including the trait emotion intelligence questionnaire. We had included uh, a motivation um, instrument, and and this is the first time that um, I, I used the data on the motivation. Uh, instrument and linked it to the other variables that we had analyzed in different ways in the other chapters. And, and so the, the, the finding was that trait emotional intelligence was in fact linked to um, higher uh, motivation, so that the, the, the highly motivated teachers had more emotional intelligence and they were typically also the ones who enjoyed teaching more, who enjoyed uh, English, who enjoyed um, interacting with the students. So I would say that there is an interaction between uh, emotion, uh, motivation, and, and classroom behavior of uh, teachers. Were you surprised by any of the findings? Yeah, it's a question I enjoy asking my students also. Um, no, I think it was, it, it, most of it confirmed what I knew uh, about the variables and, and, and expanded on findings we had in the um, other chapters. But obviously, if you do research and you know that as well as I do, uh, it's always nice uh, to um, find something significant, some significant relationship between variables. And, uh, and, and sometimes you don't find what you expect. 
and sometimes you do, and then you all you have to do is try and come up with a, a satisfactory explanation. So in this case, the, the, there wasn't any specific surprise. On the category of length of teaching experience, mm-hmm. did you did you try to ascertain the amount of different countries a particular teacher might have taught in, for example, um, or or the amount of personalities that teacher could have been introduced to and how that may have influenced their emotional intelligence? Or was it just simply the amount of time they've been teaching? Ah, we, um, I would say that the, the concept of trait emotional intelligence is that there is in fact very little that will explain much variance in it. Um, so the, the only difference that was kind of inevitable is that if, if teachers with high levels of emotional intelligence are better teachers, then they are more likely to remain in the profession. So the, therefore, trait emotional intelligence and length of uh, experience in the profession were kind of linked um, because it is possible that those who left the profession earlier didn't have that level of emotional intelligence. So the trouble is that that these independent variables are not entirely independent uh, of each other. And that's usually a problem uh, in in social uh, sciences, that that, that independent variables are never completely independent of each other. Yeah, because I wonder about that. If a a teacher has, has high emotional intelligence, but they've only taught in one region, and yeah. they have they have a perceived high emotional like this is self reported emotional intelligence right but then yeah. you have another teacher so for example you have one teacher who's taught for twenty years in one particular region of the world and they self report high levels of emotional intelligence but you have another teacher who's only taught for five years but each year they taught in a different region in the world and they were they were exposed to different people I would guess that that person who's been exposed to different people might in actuality have the potential to have higher levels of emotional intelligence just because they, like you said, you're a Pakistani student. Like that, mm. that experience shifted your view j- just having that interaction, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not that convinced about the argument. Um, it, it, it might have a, a small effect, but, but I don't really think it, it matters that much. Hmm. Because it's a trait. Yeah. Got it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Wow, that kind of, that kind of cancels my own viewpoint because I thought one of the reasons I have high emotional intelligence is because I met a lot of different people, especially like growing up. Yeah. Like I, I was like introduced so, so to I, many I think, different people. Yeah. I think it means... You, you, you have probably uh, developed more intercultural sensitivity or you, you have developed things, obviously, through your intercultural experience. Uh, but it, it has not necessarily um, increased your emotional intelligence by 50 percent. Uh, uh, my guess would be that it might explain two to two to three percent of variance in your uh, emotional intelligence. Well, because if we're gonna if we're if we're gonna look at self control, right? You talk about well being, emotionality, self control, sociability, right? Sociability. Yeah. So self control. Next time I do an interview, I'm gonna be really careful about that topic we talked about. 
right? <laughs> or I was, like, I was aware about it, right? But I think I'm going to be much more careful. And if I'm at a party with academics or if I'm at a conference situation, <laughs> I'm going to be really careful. And that filters up now. And I've learned about that, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's like, if you don't have that experience, you almost don't have the filter. Like we talked about cur- uh, swearing, or mm. how even you distinguish cursing, right? There's two different things. Mm. So if mm. you sw- if you don't even have that experience, then it's hard to even have the self-control, right? Isn't that an argument though, towards being no. exposed? No? No, no, no. Yeah, no, I, I disagree with you on that one. I think your personality doesn't change by having new information. Um, uh, I think ha- having new information on certain topics maybe makes you um, more uh, adapted to the local social environment, um, but it doesn't change you as a person. You are the same person you were before our conversation. Uh, nothing anyone could say to you will change your personality, but it, it will maybe change the way you talk about certain things, which is fine. And, and you may discover things about yourself but discovering things about yourself doesn't mean that you, at least not on one of the personality traits. The book is The Emotional Roller Coaster of Language Teaching. This is one of the many books that you've written or edited. Um, you're, you're such a legend in the field. And I thank you so much for your time and, <laughs> and letting someone who is much, much, much lower than you on the academic totem pole, not even, not even on the same playing field, actually engage and and talk to you about these things it it was a it was a real pleasure and i i thank you for your time a pleasure thank you bye jonathan if you'd like to contact the show the best place to find out about us is our website lostincitations.com here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved our hope is to help academics educators and online content producers get in contact with each other Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.